Good morning, I'm Ellie Newman and this is It's Relationship. Join us on our venture to understand and optimize our relationships, where we are, how we got there, and what it'll take to get us where we want to go. Our guest today is Dr. Deb Robertson. Good morning, Deb. Good morning. She's currently medical director of the emergency room at the St. Luke's Hospital in Ketchum. Deb grew up in Shaker Heights, a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, graduated from Duke University, then received her master's in health administration from the University of Washington with an emphasis on healthcare policy. Later, she attended med school at Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland and followed that with a residency in emergency medicine. And she and her family moved here to Ketchum in 2009. We're here with Dr. Deb Robertson talking about our relationship with medicine. Deb is head of the ER here in town. So Deb, uh, I'd like to get started with what led you to medicine. Big question. What led me to medicine? I think ever since I was a little kid, I was always interested in what doctors do, what nurses do. An aunt of mine is a nurse and that always intrigued me. And one of those things, people would ask you what you want to be when you grow up and it became my thing to say I'm going to be a doctor. And, uh, and I guess it just sort of happened. But and So from the get-go, like right. that, that was the first grade, what do you want to be, it started right. there. Mm-hmm. And um, did you watch ER in college? <laughs> was, that a, was that something that swayed you? I remember when I was in law school, it, it was um, L.A. Law, and I think people were very disappointed when they got there that it wasn't exactly like they had anticipated. Well, you wonder, it's... Uh... I was actually in medical school when ER was going on, and we would actually use some of those episodes in lectures to talk about certain key medical things. I, you wonder if it kind of drew me to emergency medicine versus some other specialty watching those shows, but as you said, it's, it's completely different than what the emergency department's like. And um, so when you were little and you thought about being a doctor, did you have a strong sense of either what you wanted from it or what you wanted to give to it? Was it just the idea of being a doctor, something you'd seen about it, or or was there something deeper, something different? There was something about having a skill set that you could help people with. Now, I mean, a a car mechanic has has a skill set that I wish I had. Um, So there's obviously lots of things in the world you could have skill sets in to help people. But for some reason, I I was constantly drawn to the medical health side of things. And was there an element of it? Was was it, um, you had said, helping people... um, and maybe that's what drew you to the emergency room rather than research, if it, that that might have been an element that you were sort of after more directly. Well, I think, I think there is an element of being with people. Um, when I finished college, I decided, oh, I'm not going to go into medicine. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go into healthcare policy and change the way healthcare is delivered in this country. So I had kind of big visions that way. And it was right when Hillary Clinton was... Um, taking over that role in her husband's presidency to start healthcare policy changes. So I went to graduate school in healthcare policy and enjoyed the intellectual nature of what healthcare uh, policy is and what would it would take to generate reform. 
But when I actually got out of graduate school and started working in that field, I found I missed the element of being with people. And I was drawn towards the physicians I was working with who were out in the trenches, so to speak, helping people, helping a homeless person uh, actually improve their health or helping anybody. And that's when I decided the my, I, I had more enjoyment in taking care of people than trying to be a policy hack and slowly get into the political process and see changes happen and then changes be eroded and then try to make changes again. And, and that, that just it didn't have an appeal to me after a while. So I found being with people was, was far more interesting. Was there something particular within the system when you, when you first went in or you were studying in school that you thought this is what really needs to change? Being probably more on the liberal side of the uh, scale, I think I would come across people who were disenfranchised, and there was always something pulling at my heartstring. When I was in medical school, as in most medical schools, there's all kinds of volunteer opportunities to provide health care to low-income clinics, homeless clinics, and that gives you an opportunity to meet those people and talk to those people, and you realize they're not too different than you in a lot of ways. They maybe were dealt a different set of cards, but again, it just kind of pulled at my heartstrings that, huh, they don't have the same access that that uh, I might have. And so I think it was sort of creating more access um, uh, to level the playing field, so to speak. And did you decide on emergency room care sort of right at the beginning of, of med school, your residency? Because well, clearly by residency, but in med school, because that is a huge leap going from policy, which is so slow moving and frustrating and, and tiny steps versus the ER, which is the other end of the, that spectrum. I actually, the, the, the experience that clinched it for me to go into emergency medicine was a rural healthcare experience I had. And it was in uh, medical school, we had to spend six weeks in a small rural town. So we I got assigned to John Day, Oregon, which is in the middle of Oregon, uh, very, very small town, a hospital much smaller than our hospital here. And I was working with this fantastic family practice physician, and we got called into the emergency department one night, and it was a terrible car accident where a prominent uh, woman in town had been ejected from a car. I think her seatbelt had become dislodged. They had been driving home from a Thanksgiving vacation. Her husband and her one-year-old were fine, but as she had become eject, she had been ejected. She had terrible head injuries, um, abdominal trauma, and watching that unfold, what gave me an element of wow, there are big problems out there, and potentially I could learn the skill set to help these problems. And so from then on, I was just intrigued by emergency medicine and and found a niche there. Yeah, because you could have gone the other way, right? You could have seen it and thought, oh my gosh, this is too much. This is crazy. I can't deal with it. And so definitely there's a match there somewhere within you with, with your skill set and your, your passion and your interests. It's, it's a good fit. I agree. Was there um, any surprises in, in med school or, or during your residency where you thought, wow, they're not sure this is, was what I bargained for? You know, emergency medicine is, I was just listening to actually a podcast earlier today, and that's one of the ways that people get medical education these days, especially in a rural place where you can't attend lectures very easily. You listen to podcasts. 
And the podcast I was listening today summarized it so well that in emergency medicine, you train for things that you hope you never see. Becomes even more relevant in a small town where we know everybody and you really hope you never see it because the person who's going to present with it is somebody that you're probably going to have some relationship with. But in medical school and residency, sure, and even in my early years out of residency, you see things and you wonder if you can ever really be knowledgeable enough to take care of everything. And I think coming to a realization that you can't know everything about everything, emergency medicine and specialties like family medicine sort of demand that attempt to know everything about everything, but you just, you physically can't. There's too much medical knowledge out there. Um, and so I think trying to come to a realization that I wasn't going to be able to know everything about everything, but I just had to know where I could get answers and where I could get help if I needed help. And and to be able to be comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast forwarding a little bit uh, to moving to the Valley, your your family moved here a few years ago. What, what drove the move? Um, was there something that you were looking to find here? You know, a lot of different things. From a medicine standpoint, I was working in an urban emergency department, which um, was a fast-paced, fast-moving emergency department like they all are in urban areas. And But what was lacking in the challenge was if I had a cardiac emergency, I called the cardiologist. If I had a stroke, I called the neurologist. If I had a renal issue, a kidney issue, I called the nephrologist. And I could get those kind of specialists there pretty darn quickly. And you get almost a little bit lazy. You end up feeling like you're just part of a a machine where you're just trying to draw in the resources that are needed. Coming to a rural area, I was I was nervous. I was like, wow, I'm going to be the only person in this hospital for long stretches of time, and there's not the specialist right next to me. And so it added an element of excitement that was going to, that did, has encouraged me to, to study more, learn more, be on my toes. But from a personal side, um, I've always loved the mountains. That's been a passion of mine. Um, and... Then from a family perspective, my parents are part-time residents here, so it gave us a chance to have our kids closer to their grandparents and and uh, have more of a, a family-centered life. So not only did you move to a small town, you moved to a small town that has, I would think, in the emergency room, two very different populations. You have the residents that are here all year, and then you have the visitors and people that when they come, they're on vacation, and the last place they want to be is in the emergency room. Um, So not only the differences between a city and and rural medicine, but you have those very different populations to deal with. Does that present any unique challenges? You know, when I first moved here, I had colleagues back in Portland saying, oh, all you're going to be taking care of are ski injuries. And they're all going to be people from out of town who are going to be very demanding. And really, it's been anything but that. It's, uh, sure, we see plenty of ski injuries, but the diversity of things that we see and the, I mean, the uh, the people that we get to take care of in this emergency department, be them locals or out of town, are fascinating people to talk to. And actually, I I wouldn't have thought this coming into this situation. But what I find derived the most satisfaction from in this particular job is that we're not cranking through the patients like an urban ER. And there's almost always, with a few exceptions, but almost always a chance that I can sit down in the patient room, 
and have a conversation. And as you know, there's people have a wealth of experience and knowledge, no matter what your walk of life is. And to have the opportunity to draw that out of them a little bit and talk to them is uh, so rewarding. And it, it does not happen in an urban emergency department because you just have to move through. There's five people waiting for that one bed. And here there isn't. So be them out of town or local, just be able to talk to them and uh, you know, share some life experiences is very rewarding. You've hit on about five things that I want to come back to, um, and, and we will. Uh, but before we go off this topic, I just wanted to ask you, you've, you well, this was one of the ones you mentioned, um, the anonymity or, or the lack of it. And I think if you don't or haven't lived in a small town, you don't realize. Um, I've been here now 10 years, and I'm just starting to realize. And um, I had a, a medical, what I felt was a little bit embarrassing medical situation, and a friend who had moved here recently said, oh, you know, why don't you go to the ER? And I might think my jaw dropped, I must have looked at her like she was out of her mind, and I thought, are you kidding me? Um, and it, it's it's really must be something that you're faced with all the time, not only your lack of anonymity, but also the patients. And, and how do you deal that I, with that? I think that's unique to, to a small town. It is. I just... I came from a medical appointment for my own personal health earlier, and the, my physician and I were just talking about that, that, you know, you, you know people in a lot of different contexts, and go, seeing a physician, a nurse practitioner, a therapist, a physical therapist, the gamut, you have to be willing to divulge a piece of yourself and have some trust that that's going to be kept in confidence as a being on the other end of the side of the the spectrum, being the physician in the emergency department, the amount of professionalism that is in the medical staff, the nurses, the staff, the physicians, I mean, we, we were, we pride ourselves on that confidence. But as a patient in a small town, I I can relate. It's, uh, it's kind of scary because you don't know, you don't know exactly who you're talking to or who everybody, you know, everybody's so interconnected, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see it from both sides. I mean, I just had a, uh, my family member had a personal medical trauma and we had to interact with the medical community and it was, it was interesting to see our emergency staff kept it incredibly confidential and it wasn't even an embarrassing thing, but it was still, but the community all knew about it. Yeah. And so it was a constant conversation there for a while. At the supermarket. Right, right, <laughs> right. And over the break, uh, Dr. Robertson and I were talking a little bit more about uh, the lack of anonymity in this town. And she was telling me a story, and I said, no, wait, wait till we're back on the air. So, Deb, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us now. Well, I think it, it harps to how the lack of anonymity has its positives and negatives but when uh, early on when I first got here I had what for really in the emergency department is um, a, a common occurrence unfortunately which was a cardiac arrest and the gentleman was brought in by the ambulance and we were doing what I think really we do best which is um, dealing with an, a, a code the heart had stopped and we're getting the heart going back again and that pretty much keeps you very focused and we have a great team and we're doing everything right and fortunately things were going in the right direction too things seemed to be turning around until his wife walked in the door 
and I had been proceeding like I did in an urban emergency department. You just assume you don't know anybody, and I didn't recognize the gentleman who had had the major heart attack. But when his wife walked in, I realized I had a connection, uh, not to the uh, her husband, who I'd never met before, but I had a connection to the wife. And I will never forget this distinct moment. Something went off in my brain, and... It, I became very emotional, and I was where I had two seconds earlier been very clinical and very analytical about the entire episode. Now all of a sudden I had, you know, I could feel my heart racing. I just felt very different, and this was towards the end of what we call a resuscitation where we were, had the helicopter coming. We got him on a helicopter, and the story has a good ending. He ended up surviving and is doing great. But it was a realization that this is going to be happening frequently. And the longer I live here, the more frequently it's going to be happening. And so, you know, how do you handle that? What do you do? Because in a way, that is the extreme of why you moved here. You know, in the, in the city, not only did you not know people, but, you know, you were only the first bit of the process. And once you diagnosed and got the patient stabilized, you're moving them on to the specialist. Well, here, there's no one else to move on to. You can't step back and say, oh, sorry, I know this person. You know, someone else take over. They're not there. Right. Well, you know, the other thing that happens in the emergency department is you have these horrible cases, these very traumatic uh, or uh, extreme medical cases, and you just have to keep on moving on. You go from a cardiac arrest to someone with what seems relatively trivial to after a cardiac arrest, like let's just say a sore throat. Still an emergency, but not at the same degree as the cardiac arrest, and you just kind of move on through your day, and you rarely have time to process. Well, what I found with that experience is that every time I run into that woman, I have this chance to reconnect and think through that experience, and I find that helps me quite a bit. It, I think it's helped me uh, grow as a person and as a physician because there's more to anyone's life than one ER experience, and I get follow-up on the person, but more importantly, I can give that person a hug and say, how are you doing? And we can talk about that very traumatic event together because you like to think that the physician is not traumatized by any event that they see, but there is a, a huge, even if you don't know the person, there's a lot of emotions that go into it. Um, but again, we're sort of trained to suppress it and move on. And so, you know, out out and about, I can see this person and we can connect on that issue. And so I, I've actually really enjoyed that. That's what I was thinking. You have, have an ability for a deeper connection and, and for more opportunity for resolution for everyone, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. You mentioned being trained to suppress, and I, I heard a lecture over the weekend um, online about doctors and um, the pressure and the expectation, the complete expectation to be perfect. You are not allowed to make mistakes, and he was comparing it to a batter in Major League Baseball. And if they have a, a batting average of 300, that's pretty good. And that means they're only batting 3 out of 10 or 300 out of 1,000. Um, that doesn't work in your field. And yet you have 
an unrealistic expectation placed on you that you are not supposed to make mistakes. And you have an additional burden that you are in an emergency situation. Um, you don't have time to bring in other people and discuss it and to go back and look at the computer or the books too much and think about it and try something and try something else. You, you've got to act. How do you manage that? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to, who knows? I mean, I, it, it, there's a certain excitement there and that appeals to me. Um, the fact that you walk into work and you have no idea what's going to be happening in that day. You don't know, you don't look at your list of patients who are coming in and have a sense of how the day's going to go. It, so there's that actually, for whatever reason, that appeals to my personality. And I would say it probably appeals to all the physicians that I work with in the emergency department. That's just part of emergency medicine. And again, you do train for those crazy cases. Now, in all reality, I mean, it's not like ER. We, uh, it does not ha it's not every patient encounter is this life and death situation that really is actually pretty rare to have life and death situations. And as many of my professors have always told me, you get trained in medical school, people don't die easily. So there's <laughs> a good not, thing. It, you're not really on that edge a lot. Um, yes, there's occasions when you are, but it doesn't happen very often. So it's not as intense as you might think it is. Um, and you're alone as a physician, but one of the things that I love about emergency medicine as well is it's a very much a team approach. We have incredible nurses, paramedics, staff that are there with you. And I, we always say when we have to go upstairs to help with a person who's having a code or a cardiac arrest or something, it's actually very comforting to the emergency physicians to have some people from the emergency department there with us because we've, we're kind of a well-oiled machine. We can anticipate each other and we kind of do things without even talking because we just kind of know what needs to get done. So you don't feel really that alone. But again, I think there's uh, an element of someone who is attracted to the emergency department for medicine who is happy acting and you don't we're not the type of people who just sit there and need to absorb a lot of information before we act and and you're in charge of that system and so what were you trained in how to manage it, how to manage the communication flow, the information flow, the the team dynamics, whose responsibility is what, and how you're going to work as a team? No. No. <laughs> so that's when you learn on the fly. That's, that's always a criticism of physicians. You know, we get trained to be physicians, but we don't get trained how to be managers. And there is definitely an element of being a manager, even if you're not, I mean, I'm the medical director, so I have kind of constant management responsibilities. But even when you're in the emergency department just practicing medicine, especially in this emergency department, there's one physician and a few nurses, a paramedic, some uh, maybe a tech, and then some other staff. And so there is an element of leadership even in that experience. And I would say it's not something you get trained in. And there's certainly people who are better at it than others. There's a little bit of learning on the job and realizing that things go better if you talk out loud, if you you know use some communication techniques that are effective. But you just, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I think nowadays people are starting to realize that communication has as much, if not more, importance than some of the medical knowledge. 
Yes, and that brings me to what I was going to ask as the first question, but I, I forgot, was in residency, um, this lack of sleep, and I had heard from someone that the reason that they do it is because they don't want as many shift changes, because when they have a shift change, communication information is lost. So is it just to torture you all, or is there a, a reason that, that it still persists? Well, it re- I think the, the reason is because the longer, the more hours you spend in the hospital, the more you see, and the some people would argue the better you are trained. So one of the criticisms with some of the new things, the new changes where uh, doctors or <clears throat> doctors in training are not allowed to be in the hospital for more than X number of hours, and every specialty is a little bit different. One of the criticisms of that is that those training physicians are not going to see as much. And there is a lot that happens in a, let's say, 48-hour time period. A patient can go from critical to better or critical to worse. And if you're leaving at the 12-hour mark, you might miss some critical change in the patient, and therefore that's not going to be part of your learning experience. So it's really more about you know seeing more patients, experiencing more medical conditions. The sleep deprivation and the long hours are just a uh, factor of the fact that hospitals are open 24 hours a day and people have emergencies and uh, at all different times. So, you know, the, it just it never turns off. So do you feel like you learn to operate in a different realm? Are, are you, are you, you know, because when you're tired, it's, it's hard to think and to act. And it, it, that doesn't go away. I don't think doesn't you, go away. I don't think you become better at it. I mean, maybe it weeds out some people, you know, there are obviously some people who really have to go to bed at a certain time and wake up. Um, If you ask my husband, I do better when I'm working day shifts than I'm working night shifts. I uh, can be crankier after night shifts. So, I mean, I think we all suffer a little bit uh, with that. It it seems reasonable. Um, so you said that kind of the patterns of, of um, effective communication sort of develop, that you learn it's better if you, if you speak out loud. Um, I also heard some studies about um, going, the, a physician that went over to Boeing and sort of said, okay, how do you deal with complexity? Because the medical industry is getting more and more complex. There is so much information. There are so many uh, parts to, to the system, so many different people operating on the same project and all have different information and different expertise. And he had done a study utilizing checklists, which seems sort of arcane. And I think, you know, doctors were sort of like, hmm, we don't need that. But the results were incredible. 50% the mortalities, I think, went down by 45%. Errors went down by sort of 33%. Um, but it seems like something like that needs to be balanced with the culture of medicine and with hospitals and with emergency rooms and, and doctors themselves. Do you see that being implemented more in, in systems to try to manage the new on, onslaught of information? Definitely. And I think it does. It's some people embrace it and some people really try to push it away. But I think there's enough examples moving forward where certain times checklists are appropriate. I mean, the classic example is in the um, uh, operating room where we all have heard these horrendous cases where the person's 
diff, uh, the wrong leg was operated on or, you know, things like that where, uh, you know, we now have not just in this hospital, but hospitals across the country are required to have a what we call a procedural pause or timeout. So before you do any type of intervention on a patient, everybody stops. You go through a checklist to make sure you have the right patient, the right leg, the right important things, right airway equipment, all those kind of things. And and 99% of the time it was always done correctly anyways. But again, you, you need to be 100%. And so those checklists catch that 1% maybe, and I'm just pulling those numbers out of my head, but those small fraction of times when the wrong procedure was going to be done or the wrong patient was involved, those kind of things. Or that you took all the things out that you put in that right, don't right. belong exactly. there. You're counting all those things. And so we, we utilize that in the emergency department as well. It's not as, you know, when someone has a shoulder dislocation, it's pretty obvious which shoulder you're trying to put back in, but we still have a procedural pause and we just make sure we have all the equipment we're going to need that we've thought through all the worst case scenarios that, you know, we have airway equipment we have the respiratory therapist, we have the person on the monitor, their blood pressure has been checked, we've checked their allergies, we have the right person, and we have all the equipment we need to put the shoulder back in before we embark on this little journey. And it's a go. (laughs) And it's a go, right. What, one last question on this topic, um, and I'm, I'm wondering if this was something you were trained for in, in medical school, but as our conversation progresses, I'm guessing the answer is no. Um, you deal with a lot of emotions as well in the emergency room. You have to deal with your emotions, which we talked about a little bit. You also have to deal with the, the patient's emotions, the family of the patient, and, and the staff's. Have you, have you learned any tricks or secrets there or techniques? No, I... Uh... Tears come out of my eyes often, and I, I have a heart. I mean, I, you intellectually can suppress things and move on and deal with the, the data and the tasks at hand, but I, you can't totally divorce yourself from the emotions. And certain things generate more emotions than others. But geez, even a, when you witness a baby being born very normal process, but there's just something so amazing about that and so emotional about that, I'll find tears in my eyes. And is it good, is it bad? I don't know, but it, um, you know, I think there's a lot of times when hugs are needed. I'll put a plug in uh, for the uh, local hospice organization we have here in Carolyn Nystrom. I have learned many things from that amazing woman she is in that emergency department quite a bit. When we have cases where it looks like someone might die or has died, I don't know how that woman lives because I have the sense that she never sleeps, but she is in that emergency department helping us out and watching her interact with family members and patients at those extremely critical and emotional moments has uh, opened my eyes to some improved communication and and, uh, ways of dealing with those very challenging times. And even the the cases that aren't emergencies, um, I know you're great at it because we've been in there and and my daughter had uh, hurt her arm and was extremely fearful. 
and you were fabulous. So you've learned it somewhere, and you you absolutely put her at ease and and um, hadn't thought about it as much before. But I think because you did have constant communication with her, you were speaking to her the entire time, explaining what was going on, and um, really doing a fantastic job at, at managing her fear. Again, I think it's this emergency department lends itself to that more than like a really busy emergency department. And that's the goal always is to try to alleviate people's fear. I mean, no matter if it's a stub toe or if it's a heart attack, it's all an emergency to that person. Absolutely. And trying to acknowledge the anxiety that comes along with an emergency and presenting yourself to a doctor and nurses who you may, might not know or you might know and you don't like them because you <laughs> met them that. somewhere else. Um, very anxiety provoking. And so, again, when we have the time, we like to we like to proceed in that manner and try to alleviate those kind of anxieties. I wish I could say it happens 100% of the time, and it probably doesn't, but um, certainly with this emergency department, with a slightly slower pace, we can more often, I think, accommodate those anxieties. And uh, we were just going to talk a little bit now about looking at the system that she's working within. And uh, you hear a lot of talk these days about the surging costs of medicine, that they've become prohibitive, that insurance companies are dictating visits and procedures, and that there's an escalated use of the ER for non-emergency care. And uh, that may differ greatly in in a city versus a small town like ours. Deb, Deb, what has been your experience with that? In um, my practice in urban emergency medicine, you would see a lot of people who did not have primary care providers. And so for many of those people, their only option was to go to the emergency department. And because of federal laws, there's an open-door policy on, on emergency departments. There's no expectation that someone needs to pay up front, let's say. So because of that, you can you end up getting a lot of people who really have nowhere else to go. In a place like this, where a vast majority of people actually have a relationship with a primary care provider, you maybe we see fewer unnecessary visits, but... The clinics aren't open 24 hours a day like the emergency department is, and emergencies and medical things happen to people 24 hours a day. So it's always hard to say what's what is um, a what's the driving force. Yeah, what's the driving force, and what's um, a necessary emergency department visit, and what's an unnecessary emergency department visit. And I think. And that that may vary in in a rural town or small town versus a city where there are so many options. You have walk-in clinics. Doctors are there, you know, many more. Doctors are there on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. Um, So it might really be serving a different purpose, and it might be a valid use of of the emergency room. Right. And and what is an emergency? I mean, that gets – there's a lot of debate, at least amongst emergency physicians. Probably no one else cares. But – well, except for insurance companies. Now, insurance companies want to say X, Y, and Z are emergencies, but A, B, and C are not emergencies. But in reality, there is amazing overlap in things. So, and I think probably the best example that gets kicked around a lot is chest pain. So chest pain can be a heart attack and chest pain can be heartburn. And can the it's hard enough for a physician to tell the difference between the two, much less the person who is experiencing that. 
So if you leave the emergency department being told you don't have a heart attack, was that an inappropriate emergency department visit? And I will find that some people feel embarrassed that, oh, I thought I was having a heart attack. Oh, I shouldn't have come then. And I like to tell them, no, how could you possibly have known that it's one versus the other? Because the symptoms can be identical. So it does kind of give emergency physicians, uh, makes them cringe when a insurance company is saying, well, that was an inappropriate visit for heartburn. When in reality, there is no way to know at the outset what is going on. So it's a good example, Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, from the end result, you can say, okay, that really wasn't needed, but but certainly the patient can't tell. And what makes us the most, uh, us as emergency physicians, the most frustrated is the person who waits for a long time before they come in. And a good example of that is a stroke. A vast majority of people with strokes don't come in within the three-hour window. We need them to come in so that we can actually do something about the stroke. And part of that is because sometimes those stroke symptoms will happen in the middle of the night when you're sleeping. And so you wake up with them and you don't know how long you've had those symptoms. But a lot of people are, well, I just thought it would go away. I thought it would go away. And I felt like I didn't think it would. It was an emergency. I didn't think I needed to come in. And after a certain number of hours, there's nothing we can do. And that we can only just hope that Mother Nature is going to help improve those stroke symptoms. So I again, that kind of negative publicity about emergency departments that you shouldn't come in unless it's a true emergency, I think it pushes people out who really are having true emergencies because they feel like they're overreacting. And I would think especially in this community, like a large percentage of it prides itself on being tough. And so I could imagine, it's like, oh no, I'm fine may have more of that than, than in a typical small town. Yes. You, you uh, hit a little bit on um, the challenge for diagnosing exactly what's going on and, and the imp- advances in technology have made vast improvements in that area. I was just looking at a study where they are using brain scans now in a new and different way and are able to diagnose problems that originally and until now have been really just diagnosed by behavioral uh, actions and symptoms. And they are discovering that kids that were diagnosed with autism, extreme autism, or ADD, or a host of other behavioral problems, once they get these brain scans done, um, one particular case was a child who had extreme autism they thought and they they turns out he was having such minor stro- uh, seizures that they couldn't be detected other than with this brain scan and as soon as they did the brain scan and put him on anti-seizure medicine he's completely recovered from all the behavioral challenges he's developed language he's doing taekwondo he's doing great at school he's social um, so advances in technology are are absolutely fantastic in some ways. Um, I've also heard the other side of the story that we're losing the human element, the human touch, and um, that that where do you see that conflict and, and what's our way through it? It's always a challenge to know when someone comes in, I mean, again, my arena is the emergency department. So when someone comes in the emergency department, knowing how far to go with something, how much to work something up. And 
a truism in medicine in general is when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Because really, common things are common, and the more obscure things are not that common. So if you had an autistic kid, every autistic kid, if you did brain scans on, well, that probably would contribute to the high costs of health care that we have, and it's probably only a mere fraction of those kids that actually you would find anything on, um, just to use your example. The other problem with technology is you find things that probably don't mean anything, but you're not sure what you need to do with it. So for us, like in the emergency department, someone comes in with abdominal pain. If they have certain signs and symptoms, and we often will get a CAT scan of the belly, and then we find, oh, look at that. They have a funny-looking thing on their liver or on their kidney or on their spleen. And there's a lot of those, quote-unquote, funny-looking things that are benign. They don't mean anything. But a CAT scan can't always tell you that. And so then you have to tell the person, well, you don't have appendicitis, but you have this funny-looking thing on your liver. And what do you do with that information? Usually the recommendation is to get another CAT scan in a few months or so to see if something has changed or a biopsy. But you can see how that's a slippery slope, kind of leading you down a lot more medical tests and interventions, costs, potentially risks to your personal health by having these uh, procedures. And the reality is a lot of them are benign, or we just don't know. We don't have enough medical information to know uh, what it means. And so I think, you know, right now we're at this crossroads of trying to, as we, as we uh, gain more medical knowledge, trying to figure out what is an appropriate workup for certain things. And maybe too much workup is more harm than good. But then it begs your, you know, your perfect example of, but what about those cases that maybe you could find something? And I don't think we have the right answer for that. And, and uh, I don't know, one of my favorite um, things to read in the New York Times in the Sunday Magazine is every now and then they have these kind of medical mysteries. And a internist from uh, Boston writes this article and gets uh, stories from all across the country. And they'll talk about how the person has seen 15 doctors for this one medical mystery, and it's the intern that actually has the time to sit down and sift through and get the history that, oh, the woman is putting zinc oxide cream all over her body three times a day. It's a zinc toxicity. That's how it finally gets solved. And so it, I think it goes to show that the more time you can spend with people, you might actually come to the bottom of some of these medical mysteries versus just ordering more tests. And it seems like with specialization, we're going more in that direction. You know, once someone is in the specialist's office for a particular thing that that person is the expert on, and that's what they do, it's very likely, you know, they're seeing through that mask of their history, their knowledge, their expertise, and and really then focusing on one small part of that picture. Um, I've, I've learned recently about a, a direction that some people in medicine are going called functional medicine, which is really looking at the whole, not only the whole person, but the whole system. You know, not necessarily what are they feeling and experiencing and what is their history, but with the environment and all the other elements that come, come um, with it. And those seem like two very different directions to head in. 
we can give a lot of medical advice that has absolutely no relevancy to someone's life if you don't know what their their life experiences are. I mean, uh, I mean around here, people live in one room shacks. They don't have bathtubs. They don't, you say, well, you need to take a bath in warm soapy water for a certain whatever. They don't have a bathtub. Well, that's not going to make sense. Or you need to uh, make sure you're getting to bed at the same time every night at 10 o'clock. Well, they work different shifts. That's not going to work. And as we all know, building a relationship with someone so that you really understand someone's life takes a lot of time, not 15 minutes to... That was what I was just thinking of. Is it a time question or is it a focus question? Is it a matter of, of philosophy or is it just a matter of time? I would say most of my medical colleagues would give anything to be able to spend longer periods of time with each patient to try to figure things out. But it's just not a reality right now in uh, healthcare, uh, in certain types of healthcare, like your average clinic, your average emergency department. Um, there's only a certain number of providers and there's a certain number of patients. And to make that equation work out, it requires short appointments. Um, and I think it, it is. It's frustrating for the provider who wants to delve into things because you just can't sometimes you have you can tell the person to come back and you can start things up um, certainly some some types of medical specialties healthcare specialties um, lend itself more to spending more time I mean the a psychiatrist for example by virtue of needing to talk they spend more time but there are certainly even people who say, I didn't even have enough time with my psychiatrist. It was kind of an in and out uh, experience. Well, and, and that field of medicine has changed as well. Often now you have psychiatrists that all they do is prescribe medication, and right. they spend that time talking about which medication sort of would be the best fit. But the, but the end goal is definitely to prescribe a medication rather than talking therapy, which now it sort of seems has trickled down more to the, the psychotherapist or the counselor. Mm-hmm. And I, as I said, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I've enjoyed about coming here is from an emergency physician standpoint, I do get to spend more time with people, but do I really have enough time to learn the in intricacies of their lives and their social habits? I mean, again, as we all, you know, when you get asked by a complete stranger, how much do you drink? How much do you smoke? All physicians know it. I mean, it's human nature to minimize some of those things that you know you're not supposed to be doing to excess, but maybe you do. And so, you know, for that person to really have enough trust in you that you're going to use that information appropriately and helpfully, that takes a serious relationship to develop. And you just can't have that. Unfortunately, I mean, it, it, it's, there's just the practicalities of how medical interventions take place. It rarely do you build that kind of relationship, uh, in the emergency department. So it's almost you have to take apart the whole system to be able to get at what's, what's really needed. Well, I think it certainly speaks to the fact that there's a lot more to healthcare than seeing a physician. And uh, one of the things that's fantastic about this community is the diversity of healthcare options that we have. Um, you know, we really have a lot of people who can see healthcare from different perspectives. And again, if the person has the ability to access some of those people, 
there's without even leaving this valley, I think you could find somebody who can relate to your particular healthcare issue and be able to offer sage advice. But it's not always in the emergency department. It's not always at a physician's office. Well, you're doing an incredible job juggling all of these elements of these relationships. You've got to deal with a variety of people, a variety of situations, a variety of coworkers. You've got thousands of medications to choose from, thousands of procedures to know about, and uh, it's it's pretty amazing from looking at it from the outside. Well, I'm here. I've been here now for four years, and I still, on a regular basis, learn about people in this community and the skill sets that they have. And it's been on one of those back of my mind type of things, but I've always thought, boy, it'd be so cool to have like a catalog of people in the valley with all their skill sets. And so when I encounter patient A who could use skill set D, I look through my little catalog and find it as opposed to just trying to keep it in my brain. That's fantastic. Well, I'm hoping that it's been wonderful to speak with you today, and I'm hoping that you'll come back and share some of your knowledge with us about the healthcare um, policies and the future of healthcare. Uh, I'll leave you with this thought. We've got a um, projection for the future of one in three adults having diabetes. Uh, we've got a huge problem with obesity. We have over half of adult Americans taking prescription medicine daily, with, I couldn't believe this statistic, 81% taking some type of pill. Uh, daily, even though it may not be prescription. Um, we're moving away possibly from th- our main issue being infectious disease and into a whole new world of chronic diseases and how to deal with those. And as we talked about a little bit today, is the answer more specialization, more use of technology, or a completely opposite approach, which might utilize those things, but really focus on a whole person and uh, functional medicine. So if you're willing, we'd lo- love to have you in the future. Thank you, Ellie. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much. I say done work, waking up, pay me up, nine to five, five to one, one to eight thirty in the morning. Give me five more for my me time. Pray it works. Give me five more for my knees time. I don't even need rhymes. I supply rhythm is